to Natural MD Radio, your place to hear the whole truth on health and medicine for women and children and get the tools you need to take back your health naturally starting now. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. We're in a time of heightened anxiety and depression for so many folks. And of course, for so many reasons, if you're Black, well, I don't have to tell you, but I'm going to honor it and say it for white listeners too, so people understand. There are worries and stressors upon worries and stressors. Increased risk of police violence, yes, but also increased risk of getting sick and dying from COVID due to factors that come down to racism. And if you're a Black pregnant woman, there are additional hidden risks. One of these is the fact that there's a four and up to 12 times, if you're in New York City, for example, increased risk of dying as a result of the impact of racism on Black and Brown pregnant and birthing women, a risk that cuts across all economic and educational lines. If you're a Black woman with a college education or more, your risk still far exceeds that of white pregnant and birthing and postpartum mamas. My guest today, Dr. Jessica Clemens, MD, is a board-certified psychiatrist making it her life's work to break down the stigma around talking about mental health, especially in the Black community, where it's largely been taboo, and to help people reclaim their power, their awareness that they're not their trauma, and to come home to themselves again. She uses social media as a platform to create community discussions about anxiety, trauma, depression, and more, largely via at Ask Dr. Jess, where she hosts weekly live Q&A sessions to educate her following as well as engage with them in real-life events. Her emerging platform, Hashtag Be Well, features community-based conversation series with prominent guests intended to inspire attendees and normalize conversations about mental health. Her efforts have gained national attention, including being selected to provide the first live televised therapy session on VH1 in session live with Dr. Jess. Recognized, she's also recognized as the first spotlight story for Beyonce's 2019 We Good Black History Month campaign, as well as the atten- having gotten the attention of the First Lady of New York City, the New York City Department of Mental Health, the American Psychiatric Association, and several global, bland, global brands. Jess is also a new mama, welcoming her baby boy, Brilliant, who came into this world this past April at home. We're going to talk about the intersection of mental health, birth, being a Black woman, stigma, and all of this in America, and whatever else gets in this, into this inspired conversation. Jess, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, and thank you for that introduction. It was very lovely, and sometimes like crazy to hear, you know, like the things that we've been able to accomplish. I think about just as a woman, I'm like, whoa, okay, I've done a lot. <laughs> you are doing a lot. It's really beautiful, and it's really beautiful to see you as a woman, as a physician, as a black woman physician, as a black woman physician mama, like all of the the names that we have or you have that women have that can be obstacles to doing what you're doing. So not only is the work amazing, but I'm sure you're really inspiring to a lot of folks right now. And it's, it's beautiful. Thank you. I'm excited to have this conversation with you. I am too. Okay. So first question I have for you is 
why did you choose psychiatry, right? We go to medical school, we can choose any number of things. Was there something personal for you Were you that you were like already interested in this intersection of mental health or mental health and race and stigma? Like, was there a turning point, a story, a series of stories? What was that for you? Yeah, I, I, so I did not plan to become a psychiatrist. Um, I, I knew like for most of my life that I wanted to go into medicine. Like I wanted to be a doctor since I was a, a little girl. Um, you know, I think just growing up, my, my parents, like my, you know, my dad was a pretty, like came from a pretty like middle class, mm-hmm. like well-to-do family. My mom, not so much. So in my household, there was like a big push for education and like that was really stressed. So I just kind of had it in my mind very early that I wanted to be a doctor and it surprised my parents, but they supported it. Um, so it really wasn't until medical school during my, uh, during my rotation in psychiatry that I even learned, first of all, that psychiatrists are medical doctors. I really didn't have a, any clue about that. Um, you know, we, we weren't seeing therapists or psychiatrists, you know, in my household. Um, but it was there that I felt like I was really a part of a team. You know, as a medical student, you're not often really viewed as like a helpful part of the team, but I felt like I was. Um, and it was in caring for a patient who had depression that was so severe that he was really just like sitting in one place. I learned later it's called catatonia and he really just wasn't moving. He was blinking really slowly. I'd never seen anything like that. And, you know, when I talked to the attending, the psychiatrist about it, you know, he explained this is depression, but ultimately it was when we treated this patient um, and he got well and he was like smiling and walking around, like leading the laps. This was on a psychiatric unit that I realized like mental health really affects the body. And I just fell in love with it at that point. And I remember the attending turning to me and he said, this is psychiatry. And it just like, for me, that was the light bulb. Um, and I think when I reflect on my life, even though we weren't seeing therapists, like both of my parents are black, they're from Detroit, Michigan. Um, they were very open about feelings, you know, like we talked about how we felt it was important for, for them to know how we were doing my brother and I, how we were doing on the inside. So I think that really also contributed to maybe why this field was something that interested, you know, gave me ultimately interested me. Yeah, that I had an What do you think the difference was in your family about talking about feelings and that sort of disconnect that I know you talk about and I've certainly seen in my work of um, of mental I mean mental health has kind of been taboo to talk about in our culture in general, but you talk about it being taboo in the black community particularly. And so what is that about? And then what was the difference? Why do you think there was a difference in your home? Yeah, so I think I, I would I absolutely would agree. It's it's mental health is taboo really just kind of across the board. I think if you look at race, gender, you know, socioeconomic status, it really is very difficult, I think, for for anyone to 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 be open about mental health or if they're in treatment. Um when I when I really emphasize centering uh the black community, I, I think it's for a number of reasons. Yes, it's you know just taboo because our minds are like, you know, this part of us that it's hard to imagine if, if it's something wrong with it, right? It's like if someone tells you that you are depressed, immediately people can say you're crazy or use all of these, you know, this language that just stereotypes you and then minimizes 
you know, who you are and just, it's very devaluing. It just, I, I don't know how any other way to explain it. It's just something like hard to detach your something wrong with your mind from like your identity. Right. So I think that's on like everyone's mind, but I think within the black community, there has been a history of, of distrust that really lends itself to what we are talking about more openly now, you know, with the way that black bodies have been, you know, abused and mistreated by all systems really, but that includes the medical system. So, you know, if you are part of a black family and your elder has learned that if a person is diagnosed with schizophrenia, they go away to a hospital and they don't come back the same, or they go away to a hospital and you can't really see them anymore. Of course, then you're going to pass down to the next generation that we don't need to go see doctors about this. So I think it's part of it is stigma, but I really think the bigger part is that the medical system has really done a disservice to the black community and people are afraid at this point. It's a real safety issue. Um, And I saw it even as a medical resident, um, I saw and had to intervene quite a few times with black and brown bodies, black and brown people. I don't want to minimize people to bodies, black and brown people um, being stereotypes and sickle cell patients come to mind who are always black folks, Mm -hmm. um, you know, being stigmatized as drug seeking rather than no, that person actually needs that much morphine because they've had this severe, like you can see the pain since they were eight years old and have already had a stroke and their clearly hands are crippled. And you're saying this person is just looking for morphine. It's ridiculous. And Mm -hmm. I've seen it in the birthing settings. Um, you know, people judging a single black mom different than a, a white mom would be, single white mom would be seen. So many, so many, like a million points where we see these things happening. And I don't know if you've read Harriet Washington's book, Medical Apartheid, but you know, she talks about um, iatrophobia, so medically induced fear mm-hmm. of seeking medical care as a reason, a part of a reason for things like diabetes getting caught later or blood pressure being caught later rather than people being like lazy or not smart enough to get medical care. It's Mm -hmm. like a, it's an actual survival reason to stay out of the doctor's office. Yes. I would absolutely agree with everything that you're saying. And I really wish more, more people realized, realized that that's what um, the experience and reality of what it means for a black person to engage in the healthcare system. I really wish more people realized that. Like when you mentioned uh, a black patient with sickle cell, I can remember in one of my, like we had these small classes that we would sort of break into. They called them like problem-based, problem-based learning, um, which I loved. So I, I went to Cornell. I definitely um, have really nothing but positive things to say about my experience. I mean, there, you know, there's some nuanced things that have happened there, but it really overall was very excellent training during medical school. But I distinctly remember a module that we had about sickle cell. And, you know, of course they used a black patient because to your point, most patients with sickle cell are of African-American descent or African descent. Mm -hmm. Um, But, but there was this sort of undertone about there was like a judgment surrounding like what to do next with the patient as far as pain. And it was just interesting at how that was something that was being taught, whether it was, it wasn't, I don't think it was intentional, but it's just something that this bias that's happening. 
yeah. So even when you mentioned that, I'm just thinking about the earlier sta- stages also of when I was training, that that was something that would come up. Um, and even feeling like I couldn't say anything in that space was something that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about now, too. And it's interesting because as a white student, I could say things, right? I mean, I was older and I was already established as professionally, but you can still get booted out of medical school or, or mistreated, right? Mm-hmm. But I remember being in one of our small groups. And there was something about something about health politics came up. And I remember a white male medical resident saying, I wish those people, like I'll never forget, you know, like those things that you never <laughs> forget. I wish those people would just realize that if they just tried, they could change their lives. And I was like, that is so judgmental. I said, I because I grew up in a housing project with a single mom in New York. And I said, you know, when you grow up in certain environments, it's like you can try and try and try and change things, but the world around you might not change. And so you can also learn that you don't have the ability to change things. And then Mm. you get stuck in that helplessness, but it's not the person that is lazy. It's the system that is immutable for that person. Absolutely. But there's so much judgment in the, in the medical model, but okay. So, you are you're having these experiences one of the one of the things i wonder about is um so psychiatry over the last probably 30 years has really become very much more about pharmaceuticals than for example like prior to that where there were other th- talk therapy were you also at this time in your life aware of things like healthy eating or issues around trauma, like some of the things that you've now become more aware of? No. So, you know, just again, thinking about during medical school, like the first exposure that I had to psychiatry, it was primarily like the, the psycho farm, right. The medication, um, part of the training, trying to think where the, where some of this other material really came in. I I really think it, it came in, um, it really was during residency. Um, so at NYU there, there is obviously, you know, we're trained on, you know, how to diagnose and treat and, and treat with medication, but there's also a big emphasis on the therapy, um, and how as psychiatrists that we could, we could ultimately do both. And so I, I learned after I've worked at a couple places after that, that's not something that every psychiatrist, um, really has access to in their training. There can be a very, you know, a, a great emphasis on making sure that you are using medication and know how to use medication and, and that track of thinking. And I've, you know, I've worked in, in some places where there was very little emphasis on, the sort of therapeutic model. Um, so it was really at my, my training in NYU that, that I was able to sort of be exposed to that. We were expected to carry a number of cases that were just pure therapy cases where we're not even, you know, choosing to or offering medication. Not that we're withholding it, but we're really, those cases were thought to be better treated with uh, therapy or, again, having the option to do both. Um, we even had supervisors, which are ultimately like the, the more experienced, you know, uh, providers um, that were not MD backgrounds, you know, people who were 
licensed clinical social workers who were therapists that, you know, I would talk about cases with. So it was, it was really there. Um, and then like my own sort of reading in, in terms of things like specifically with, with therapy um, and, and learning from people who are in, in the mental health field, but also outside of this that are comfortable talking about things like trauma. And again, NYU really did have an emphasis on, on trauma, really looking at the relationship between that um, and how like illnesses like schizophrenia may develop. I'm trying to think of the person's name now, but there's someone there that, that does a lot of, a lot of education around trauma. So it was kind of, kind of that. And then, and then I sort of always felt like I just kind of use my own experience as a way to kind of lend who I am into, you know, caring for patients. I don't think that's something that we should be like leaving um, outside of outside of treatment, which so often does happen, right? I think psychiatry <laughs> is the one area of medicine, though. For my own, just you know, when you do internal medicine and family medicine, as I did, you spend a lot of time doing mental health care and also studying psychiatry. And it was the psychiatrists that were the um, only doctors I ever encountered along the way that talked about paying attention to how your body feels when you're having an encounter or pay attention to the emotions you're experiencing or the thoughts you're having, like where you learn about transference and interpersonal dynamics. So it's kind of a different way of learning about the body and interrelational connection. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe that's something else I liked about it when I would see you know, the different psychiatrists, whether they were in the hospital setting, like they, they would like sit next to a patient or they, you know, they, they didn't have a white coat on. Um, it was more about the patient kind of guiding where the conversation was going. Yeah. And at what point did you make a decision that um, you're going to focus on the issues that you're fo- focusing on now, the intersectionality of race, trauma, anxiety, depression? How did that come about for you? Yeah, I mean, I, it ultimately really just came out of um, social media, right? So during medical school, I um, I was one of five Black students, and they were, um, you know, from many different sort of backgrounds. And so, you know, I I grew up in the South and um, was really surrounded by people who looked like me. And if they didn't, we sort of all had the same cultural experience. So the first time I was sort of out of that environment was during medical school. And that was like late to like, yeah, my late twenties. So it was just a completely new environment for me. And social media was the only place that I felt really like understood. Um, and that, you know, I could post a picture of myself studying in the library and there would be like people interested about, how did I get into medical school? Like what advice would I give? And so I just found a community there. Um, and just, it just kind of evolved. So when I, you know, people were following along my journey. So as I like went to residency and said, this is what I'm doing. I had more people really interested, um, in what it means to be a psychiatrist. And then they became interested in like tips and advice and like talking about things like anxiety. So it really started with, going to social media as my own outlet and then allowing that community to sort of guide where the conversations would go. Um, And then sort of in the background is I've always really been this person who I don't mind feeling uncomfortable, if that makes sense. So I'm the same way, actually. (laughs) I almost like the, for me, it's like 
when I'm uncomfortable, I know I'm pushing the boundaries of learning something new, actually. Yes. So <laughs> I, I would agree. So I'm like, I've always felt comfortable talking about race. Um, and I don't, and I think that could be part of it. Maybe that discomfort, like, you know, we can, we can push certain conversations. So while I'm not like an expert in trauma and I haven't, you know, written papers on these, um, these, you know, experiences or these, uh, I, I, I feel comfortable lending my voice to it. And so that's really what I, what I do with social media and sort of with the public engagement is I try to foster these conversations because I just think it's important because I remember what it was like, you know, during training when not a lot of people were talking about it, even though there are plenty of researchers who are doing the work. Um, I just, I just felt like it's important for me to lend my voice to it, both because I, I'm experiencing it, but then I also see what's happening to my patients who are living through it as well. Yeah. And so you get through med school, you got through residency, and you're still practicing clinically. You're still seeing patients now, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you get a partner and you become pregnant. and were you already all about the home birthing or was this something that evolved for you no absolutely not it evolved for me um so I had you know probably like most people who are in medicine you you imagine that you can sort of plan everything out so I you know I thought that I would you know during my last year of residency is psychiatry is a four-year program. I imagine I would be pregnant that that period of time. And then, you know, I'd have my baby, then I'd start my first attending position. But it it didn't happen that way for me. Um, And it actually was a very stressful period because it wasn't going as planned. Um, And so I think if it weren't for my husband really being very like sort of calm and able to kind of distance himself from all the like anxiety that I had around, like not getting pregnant right away. And like, oh my gosh, you know, black people, like what do you, we don't go to IVF. This is like the thoughts that I'm having, um, even though obviously we do, but you know, like these aren't conversations that I'm having with my peer, my peers, for example. Um, so it was just a very stressful period. And my process group in, in residency, um, we were, you know, talking about that and I remember the process group leader sharing that residency is a, um, a great birth control. So <laughs> um, I didn't realize that at the time, but it, it ultimately was just taking a while to, to have it happen. Um, so when it did, that's when I started really thinking about my experience with, you know, we did start to talk about IVF and I, I went to see not IVF, but seeing a, a doctor about like, what's going on? Why am I not getting pregnant? Um, and then it happened once I took time away after residency, but it was that experience. I think that started to sort of open my mind to like, what would happen when I get pregnant and we start this because it, it, it some of it felt very medicalized. Like it didn't, it, it felt like I had to come into the experience really telling people who I am. And like, I, I, I don't know, it felt a little bit like we were just kind of a number in the process of like here's what you do to get pregnant. And it, it, something about it didn't feel really like the person or the experience was really connecting. I've started, I think, to open my, my mind to it. Um, 
And then when we got pregnant, I think it just really like, again, seeing, I, I don't know, maybe it's here in New York, but just seeing how many people are waiting in the waiting room and, and, you know, my OB while she was really lovely, but like there were things in my chart that weren't documented um, that told me maybe she's not recognizing where I am in my pregnancy. Um, I, I don't know. And, and then I had a friend who actually gave birth at home around the time that we found out we were pregnant. And that just started to really make me think about maybe this is something I should think about. Um, and ultimately the fear, the fear, knowing the statistics that you shared at the beginning. I think yeah, that really so stuck out with me. When did you, so for me, you know, I had my first kid when I was 18 and I had already been studying midwifery for a bunch of years at that point. Like I started studying when I was 15. Wow. And when I would have my babies at home, people would always say to me, oh, you're so brave for having your baby at home. And I was like, well, for me, it was the opposite. I actually felt safer at home. Obviously, I'm a white woman, but still the statistics were already, the cesarean section rate was climbing. When my son was born, we lived in Atlanta, actually, where my husband's from. So my first experience in the South was very interesting. And this the, the epidural rate in the local hospital was um, like 95%. The episiotomy rate was almost 100%. And I was oh like, this is not how I want to experience birth. Um, I didn't obviously have fears that also were an overlay of race, but it was scary. So I would always think, no, actually, I felt safer at home. Being in the hospital was what, what felt scary for me. Um, and I know it's not it's not the same for everybody. And, you know, as a midwife and a physician, my experience is that people birth best where they actually feel safest. And for some people that is in the hospital, but I wonder, did you know the statistics when you went into pregnancy or was it something you learned as you went along? Well, I, so I did, I did know about the statistics because I think we actually really started to delve into it. Um, a part of my training is also in reproductive psychiatry. And we were talking about um, a case where there was a, uh, another, like a colleague had seen a patient who ultimately passed away yeah. um, days after giving birth. And I just remember how shocked everyone was. Um, the patient was a black woman and educated. And apparently they think like there was some complication that wasn't recognized. Um, but I just remember how shocked everyone was. And I knew about the statistics and, I also remembered when I was on my OB rotation as a medical student, seeing things like the episiotomies done without like a woman even knowing that that's what was happening. So that was also, I think, in the background when I became pregnant, knowing the statistics and then remembering my experience as a medical student. Um, yeah, seeing, seeing a physician, you know, as a woman's pushing, you know, him like, proceeding to do an episiotomy and she's asking like, what was that? And he's like, you tore. And I'm sitting there as a med student, like she did not. Yeah. You know, so I, I think I just, that just really stuck out to me. And I, same, the same description that you had about where you felt safest, I just didn't feel safe. And it's so, it's so kind of, I think people are probably gonna be like, what? She's a physician. Why is she saying the hospital? She doesn't feel safe in the hospital, but I really, I didn't. I didn't feel safest there. Um, 
you know, I didn't feel like people were taking time to really like hear what was, what the woman needed. And there was just a lot of like, the expectation was a woman like, you know, would lie on her back and push. And I just would think about like, well, during pregnancy, everyone's really recommending that you don't sleep on your back. And I'm here with hip pain because I'm sleeping on my side every night and I'm afraid to lie on my back, but you want me to push my baby out on my back? It just, it just seemed like there was just, it was so medicalized. Um, I'm kind of going on and on, but. Well, I have a question for you. So as a psychiatrist, you're a mental health professional. You're really aware of the symptoms of anxiety, for example. And so for you, you could recognize being in the hospital makes me more anxious. I want to be at home. How do you think that folks like us can have conversations with women and also particularly women of color who are at so much more risk even than white women? Um, without promoting more anxiety, right? Like there's a fine line between educating someone about things that really are dangerous potentially Mm -hmm. and not scaring people. Yeah. I mean, I I think that's a really great question. You know, I, I really just try to meet people where they are. You know, for example, if, if I'm talking with someone who, having a home birth would be like the most terrifying experience that they could imagine. You know, I, I, I hopefully would, would not come across that I'm, I'm frightening them about what the medical experience could be like birthing in that system. Um, So, so yeah, kind of starting where the person is getting a sense of what they know about, you know, what can happen during the birthing experience, sort of talking about ways that they could maybe advocate for themselves more in in any setting, right? Um, But also really encouraging them to do a little, uh, do do a little, like, you know, educate yourself, right? Do a little research about what it is that you want to know, whether it's, you know, I I don't know, do you have to have an epidural? Like, I, I, I would get that question a lot, not from, you know, my sort of psychiatry hat, but people would ask, like, in your home birth, did you have an epidural? So that tells me people, you know, aren't really educated about what the birthing process can be like in either setting. So um, I'd start from there and then also advise a person to recognize that overall it is a time that you may experience more anxiety than, you know, when you weren't um, pregnant. And that's normal to to an extent, obviously, but if you're having symptoms that are, are persistent or, you know, making it difficult for you to really concentrate or, or, or function, then you want to, to talk to, to someone about that. But the anxiety itself could be useful in helping to navigate, right? If you feel anxious when your doctor is coming into the room because you're afraid you won't get to kind of get your point out, that's, that's a tool. You should use that to either get the support you need to be able to advocate for yourself in that setting or to look for, you know, other providers. Um, I guess I, I want people to know that, that there is some anxiety associated with the entire process. Yes. Um, so let's talk more about that. And let's also talk more about um, using our bodies as a tool. Like so many of us in our modern world spend our lives kind of between our throat and the top of our head, right? Like we're talking, <laughs> we're on social media. And as women, as people, and I think especially as women, we're taught to discount our body knowing. Mm-hmm. and to discount our feelings. And yet pregnancy is a time where 
there's so much unknown anxieties are normal. Am I going to be a good mom? What's the birth going to be like? You know, am I going to be safe? Is the baby going to be safe? Is my partner going to be safe? If there's a partner, all mm-hmm. these normal thoughts that can come up at, especially at two in the morning when you wake up to go pee and right. <laughs> like you're just laying there. Um, talk more about how you um, experience that and what you share with the, the folks that you work with. Yeah. So I, I mean, as you know, a, a new mom, and I, I'm recalling my own experience when I was pregnant, and we were making the decision to ultimately, you know, choose to have a home birth. I, I was doing that. I was really listening to my body, and I think, to your point, I, I think you know, women are, are often sort of told not to to listen to to those signals, whether you think it's intuition or you know, you can actually feel the physical changes that you may experience when you're feeling comfortable. And then when you're not, I, again, I think maybe when the way I was raised, I really listened to that. Um, and so for me, I remember feeling uncomfortable when we were at a birthing class, the class itself was amazing, but in the setting that I would have birthed, you know, in the hospital. And I said to my husband, I don't think this feels safe to me. And he agreed. So really listening to that. Um, so, you know, if I were to, to talk to someone in the office, I would sort of get a sense about how they listen to their bodies. Do they do they do that? Do they know how to, to sort of recognize those changes? Um, encouraging like a mindfulness practice if they if they haven't, um, because that's a good way to really learn about what's happening and happening inside your inside your body. Um, and again, just kind of helping the person to pay better attention to that, to get more in, in tune with the signals that are coming through. Um, because I, I, I do think it's a, a great tool. I mean, I, again, I used it and I felt like it really resulted in ultimately the type of birth that I was hoping for. Um, it was really listening to that intuition and, and, and letting it really guide me. Yeah. It's a big part of how I live too. It's very kind of, I call it dropping in, you know, and I'll mm. intentionally like stop. Okay. How am I feeling right now? Is this something that I want to say yes to, or, is everything inside me screaming, say no to this? And am I in alignment, right? Am I actually, are my actions, my words, my choices in alignment with how I'm feeling physically, emotionally, intuitively? Yeah, I, for me, it's been, just, I, I can't think of any time other than when I don't listen to that, <laughs> that I've kind of gone off path in my life in a way that I've regretted. Yeah. Same, same. I, I, I wonder why more people don't realize that that's, that certainly can be a tool. To I think use. we just get busy or forget to listen or, mm-hmm. you know, I can think of times where I've doubted or where I have felt something, but someone in a position of authority in some way, it could even be my partner. It could even be something I think my partner knows better than I do. And then I will defer rather than holding into my my truth or my experience. Yeah. Yeah. I'm nodding as you're saying that because, <laughs> because it, I think, again, it's just what I'm thinking about, you know, a woman that's birthing and how much that isn't given. And in, 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 in certainly in like the hospital setting, there is a, there's always a tendency to defer. Yeah. And it was a completely different experience throughout the process. Once I switched to a midwife and and I and I'm hearing you. I'm nodding because the, the I remember not telling people about a home birth because I knew that they might give me that little fear I needed to yes. like shift. So I was actually thinking to ask you about that before. Um, 
So my, I don't know if you know this, but my daughter-in-law, she's a Harvard trained pediatrician with a master's in public health from Harvard. And I say Harvard only because it's like, people think, you know, oh, the pinnacle, even at Yale, we used to call it that school up North. (laughs) Um, So she goes to this like, you know, epicenter of like whatever divine knowledge as people think of Harvard medical school. And then she's, she goes to, she's pregnant. She goes to her prenatal visit at the birthing center and there's like a mistake made misreading of her labs. And they tell her that she has a problem that she doesn't have then. And she brings that to me, but I'm like her mother-in-law and I'm this like, yes, I'm a doctor, but I've kind of like this hippie, you know, I always go like jokingly gitchy, goomy backwater midwife from the South. Right. <laughs> and and um, then she has another thing come up. Like, again, first they tell her she has a thyroid problem that she doesn't have. Then they tell her she has gestational diabetes, which she doesn't have. So finally now she's like seven months pregnant. She said, can you um, midwife, can you be my midwife at the birthing center? And I'm like, well, I can't because I have privileges at the hospital and they don't actually let the doctors deliver at the birthing center. You'd have to come birth at this hospital. And I was like, yeah, we don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. So she said, will you midwife the baby at home? And I was like, okay, this is a big ask in myself. I'm like, okay, but I do. But what was really interesting was just as she started to let a few of her peers, cause she was still in residency at the time. No, mm-hmm people's backs went up for sure. And then as, of course, the few people I shared with in my program knew, like I had to let my director know so I could have a day to go to the birth, et cetera, people's mm-hmm. pushback. And so I just was wondering, like, did your family, did your friends, your medical, like, what did people say? Or did you keep it pretty tight? Yeah, well, I mean, well, first of all, that that story you shared is, it's like right on par with, I think, a a similar experience I had where it was like, you know, going to an OB, there were some things there that just was, it wasn't fitting. And then sort of transitioning, I transitioned to a midwife who delivered at the same hospital, but my doula would just sort of nod like, okay, you think you're not going to be pushing on your back? Okay. And I'm like, no, no one's going to tell me to do that. She's like, okay. And it sort of like (laughs) led me to the midwife, but I would share with people a little bit that, you know, I was really thinking about it. Um, And yeah, I had like, a co-resident who I really love, but he was like, oh my gosh, what if you, you know, what if you like bleed and, you know, what if you, you need to ultimately like, you know, get a transfusion or something, you know, and it was just like, wait, I didn't think about that. And yeah. Or as if you wouldn't be prepared for that, right. You're not going to, I think there's this perception still uh, So when I first started to study midwifery, it was 1981. And people would say, wait, we still have those? And then I think by maybe like the early 90s when it was getting a little more like in people's consciousness, right? Because we had nurse midwives by then that were more, people were more aware of. I think people thought who everyone who had a home birth was really, really crunchy or like crunchy hippie or somehow like super uneducated and it just happened by accident. As, as opposed to the reality, which is that it's it's typically more educated people who have done their homework and are concerned about the medical model. Mm. Well, I appreciate that last piece. <laughs> <laughs> so when you were pregnant, um, how did you manage the normal anxieties that come up? I, so I really think I, I mean, I, I really had a very 
easy pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And I think it was partly, I mean, you know, I just, I'm the kind of person I really lend everything to sort of like the universe. And, but I, I really think it was because it was a sort of stressful time. Like, you know, I was starting a new position and I really had a, a very sort of unremarkable pregnancy, like no morning sickness, none of that. So nice. I, I don't really think I had a lot of anxiety around um, the pregnancy. Again, I really believe that, you know, I really wanted to be pregnant. It, it finally happened. Um, you know, my husband and I are very sort of in tune with each other. And I think I just felt like this was something the baby was doing for mama, not in the I way like, you, you know, and no, so I, I just, do. I, I, one of my really dear friends, she, um, she went pretty overdue. This was a long time ago. Her kid's like 36 now, but she went really overdue and um, she was planning a home birth. And then, you know, the midwife was like, you're going to go to the hospital. You're going to get induced, all this stuff. And I remember her just writing a letter mm. to her baby saying, I'm here for you, you know, wherever you want to get born, I'm here for you. But my hope is that you would choose this way because here's all the reasons and we're set up for this. And she finished the letter and went into labor a couple of hours later. And I just, like for me, that always just stuck with me, the the kind of co-creation that's happening between baby and how can we listen to what the baby's also asking for as, because each baby comes with their own journey. A lot of times I'll have, you know, Someone who comes to me, um, I can think of a friend who had a hospital birth a couple of years ago that ended up in a cesarean with some complications, and she was feeling very you know, hard on herself. And I'm like, look, every baby has their own path. And as parents, our job is partly to respond to their path, not create their path. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, it's kind of just what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that Yeah, I I think for me, that was something that was just constantly on my mind that, I don't know, the whole experience itself is, it's unlike anything else. Um, You know, your body's changing. You're, you're, you know, there's this being that's growing. And I don't know. So for me, I didn't want to cut myself off from like the spiritual aspect of it. Mm -hmm. You know, like the cardinal moves. How does a baby know to turn in such a way to position it. Right. So for me, I was like, this isn't something that's just like, you know, going to like, I don't know, get your car tuned. Like this is, there's something spiritual about this. And I I want it to be in that. Um, That's not to say if someone has anxiety that they're not experiencing that. But I think for my own journey, it was just, there was, it was just all about sort of getting prepared for this new, you know, role I would have, um, it was all about sort of welcoming him. And, you know, a lot of my family and friends were using that language and I hadn't really ever heard that and like saying that he's very welcomed. We, you know, it was just that I think really kind of took my mind off of the fear of sort of like, are we going to be prepared enough? Do we, are we going to have everything that he needs? You know, is the nursery going to be, it was just more like, wow, this is something that like we created and it's going to change our lives forever. Did COVID influence your home birth choice at all? Or was that a separate piece? It was a separate piece. But again, I think sort of this divine sort of mapping of, of my my life in some ways, it happened. We, we, we transitioned to our final per- person, which was finally going back to a home birth because I did let someone sort of get in my head. Um, it was that same co-resident who was like, are you sure? So just before, you know, there was this kind of big, 
shut down in New York. Like I remember March 15th, that's when everyone started basically staying home. We had, we had transitioned over to uh, my home, my, my home birth and the midwife that I absolutely love. Um, And yeah, it didn't really impact it, but she shared that we did come to her just in time because then she started getting a lot of calls. It was really something. Yeah. And did you, um, I hope this isn't too personal. If, If it is, you can, you know, defer, but just as a black woman, I'm curious, did you specifically seek a black midwife? Was that something important to you? Or that was not, or was it more about the person? It was definitely more about the person. Um, But I, you know, I did try to look for a black midwife first. Um, You know, I will say that, you know, it does help when people have um, websites. It does help when they're like up to date and they kind of give us a little sense of like who you are. I'm saying that because I found that there probably were people that could have been excellent that they didn't have that. So, so it was hard for me at 1am to kind of like do my search and feel comfortable with making that call. Um, So I think that was part of what really led me to the person I ultimately had because, you know, I could see everything about like her background and sort of, um, you know, what the birth plan is like, it, it was just a lot more detail. And then there was a way to get in touch with her to have that first call. So my, my midwife is actually, um, a Chinese woman. Interesting. Yeah. So her name is Yen Chan. I, I'd love to shout her out cause she's amazing. Please. Um, but that was really sort of what led me to that. I, I do think that we should people, and I'm saying this also as a psychiatrist who uses social media, I have a website, all that stuff. I really do think that people should get more comfortable with having that because it's hard for people to find you. Yeah. And that's really what made it hard for me to find a black midwife. I probably would have chosen one had, had I found one. So definitely like, it sounds like a need for um, midwives in general to be really transparent about who they are and to make sure that midwives who may not be being seen. Yes. Particularly to black women um, or other women to make sure that they're very seen and accessible. Yes. I think that would be, okay. that would be my sort of like, I know we're having this conversation, but that's something on the side. I really would, I, because it did it. And I'm thinking about a person like me, you know, a, another black woman, they, they maybe would you go about the same way, just kind of like search midwives that do home births in XYZ city. Right. Mm-hmm. And if you're not finding it, it really becomes almost impossible to even start to do your own research. Um, cause you, you know, you can't, you, you, you can't just pick a name and a picture. It's, it's really hard to connect with that. Yeah. Especially if you're not as like informed and I wasn't. And was your, was your partner on board the whole time? He was. Yeah, that's great. He was. I've asked him many, many times, like what it really was like for him. And he really just shares with me that he wanted me to feel comfortable um, and, and the other part is just thinking about him, like he's a black man, um, very confident. I was worried also that if we were in a hospital setting that he would be silenced or he would be sort of misunderstood if he were, you know, did like sort of advocate for me. I was worried that people would be intimidated yeah. and that would somehow inform our care. So I didn't, I didn't want that for him. So the same way that he was like, 
whatever it is that you felt comfortable doing, I was going to support. I also didn't want him to be in a setting where he didn't feel safe. This is really interesting. And I think a lot of people, like there are lots of stereotypes that are kind of like out there in the public, right? That people are just like, they make jokes about or whatever. But I don't think that there um, is an awareness of how stereotypes are so ingrained in our culture that people get treated by them. So I'm, I don't practice Judaism, but when I was in residency, I'm a pretty confident woman. I'm, an, I'm older as a student. I had no problem speaking out when I saw an injustice or something being going wrong or like whatever. I just said it. And I had an administrative assistant to a residency director confide in me that I was being described as a Jewish woman. And what that means, that's code, oh, uh, sorry, a bossy woman. Like a bossy woman is code word for Jewish woman. Hmm. And like in the hospital, um, loud woman could be code word for a black woman. Or like hmm. when we talk about people, like it's, I, I was reading a book where somebody talks about like, if you say somebody's wearing a hoodie, you hmm. conjure a black man because that's the stereotype. Mm-hmm. But if you're a black man who is stepping up to even like physically stepping up to ask a question or protect your wife, you may be considered ag- as an aggressor and be yeah. physically or even like res- like restrained or have an action against you. Or if you are a black woman who is speaking up for yourself, you may be just taken as a oh a loud black she's being loud right? mm-hmm. or angry the or angry, angry black. yes yeah. angry did yeah. you have any incidents as a pregnant woman who was black going through the conventional medical model where you felt like race was um not not only the uh, anticipatory things that you were experiencing but where you actually had an interface that left you feeling like you were treated based on race i i mean maybe not so like overtly, like, you know, I don't have a, a, a horror story per se, but I, right. But, but I, I definitely, you know, I was just very aware of ways that my needs weren't sort of being met. I could think of an example where, you know, I was going for an ultrasound appointment and someone at the front desk would just kind of like, you know, I was kind of like sharing that I wanted to schedule it on this day at this time. And there's just this sort of kind of dismissive nature um, that I do wonder about maybe because I'm black or, you know, is it so the volume? I don't know that that experience is something that I felt a, a number of times in the setting where, you know, not just from the doctors, but again, like support staff who maybe doesn't really recognize that like, I'm requesting an appointment this day, and this is the time you should be offering. Um, I guess I'm sharing it in that way because there were times where I felt like I had to say I was a doctor, and I felt like maybe then I'd get treated uh, treated differently. But I would, I rarely wanted to do that because I always felt like I also didn't want people to be intimidated by like, oh, there's this doctor I'm treating. Maybe I, you know, and I don't know, scare people because I remember what it felt like when I was treating doctors. Like I've done that too, though. I've done that where I've had to say to get better care or get a follow up on something that I'm a physician. And I even recently had an encounter where I had to, a physician was talking rudely to me, not in the medical encounter, but about another patient. And I was just like, 
do you talk to your patients like this? Because this mm-hmm. is really unbelievable that you're talking to me as another physician like this. And she, she caught herself and apologized. But I was, I was wondering too, like when you said that you had to say you were a physician, I'm, I'm reading a book right now called Birthing Justice. Mm-hmm. And it's um, about the experiences of black feminists um, who are active in the birth movement, but who have, are sharing their own experiences And there's one woman who was pretty young and single when she was having her first baby and she's a black woman and she was in law school Hmm. and she kept finding herself sort of inadvertently dropping the fact that she was in law school, not like inadvertently, but she said it was almost like becoming a tick or a habit where she would just say something about her, what she learned in law school that day at a prenatal visit. And she realized subtly that she was actually kind of like subconsciously doing it to be perceived as someone to be taken seriously mm-hmm. rather than as what she was being treated as she felt like she was being treated as disparagingly as another young black single mom, you know, like stereotype. So she kept yeah. saying something about, Oh, and in law school today, it's, <laughs> it's funny, but it's like sad in the story, you know, that she had to do that to have authority. Absolutely. I, I, I know that's why I was doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, even, you know, I've even shared that. I, I did like an Instagram live like shortly after we we had our birth. And I, you know, I shared with, you know, some of the Black listeners that it, it might be helpful not to just like say like your sort of, you know, professional background, but to give a little bit more of who you are. Um, my hope is that that will sort of humanize humanize you. But yes, I would do that. I think I would, would share like, you know, I'm a psychiatrist, even share where I trained. Um, and I've had like, you know, a doctor say like, okay, well in that case, because you know, I know that scheduling can be hard. Like you can do this to get to me directly. Um, but I, I, I would even still have in the back of my mind as a black woman, like, okay, the doctor, she's, she may be like on board with sort of, you know, let's take care of her. Let's treat her, you know, like a, how we would treat everyone else. But I was still worried, like, would the nursing staff know how, would, you know, once you take me out of my clothes and put me in, like, the, the hospital gown, will you know anything else about me? Like, you know, I, pr- I also look younger than what I am. Is that going to be a part of it? Um, again, like, my husband, he's this very sort of, like, you know, he has, like, his fro and a full beard. Are you going to be intimidated? Are you going to be nervous? You know, so it was just so many things. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, I want to focus on birth. I don't want to f- focus on like how I have to get everyone to kind of buy into liking me. I want to hear about your birth if you have time. <laughs> and, and I just want to say before, just like nobody should have to play the doctor card to get respect. Yeah. <laughs> That's the crazy thing about it, right? Like you're thinking, oh, are they going to know I'm a doctor, that I'm a respectable woman, like that you're having to think that way. And not everybody is a doctor and everyone should be treated like a respected woman. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, regardless of race, I think yeah. this is probably something that a lot of women feel. And I, I keep wondering about why is it that black women have these higher mortality rates and I, I just keep coming back to like, I just don't think people are listening. I don't think they're really listening. What do you feel needs to be heard? You know, I, I, I think that people really have to take, you know, when a black patient shares that they're, you know, feeling lightheaded, right? That can be one of the first signs that someone is, or one of the later signs actually that someone is 
probably has like their uterus hasn't like tightened up enough yet. Right. And they're bleeding to like, listen and not just kind of hear it and do other things like be very proactive when, when someone shares what's happening, because it back to what we were saying in the beginning, it takes a lot, I think for a black woman in a setting where she's not sort of the majority to finally speak up. Right. That's already a given, right? It takes, I think it takes more to finally say something. It takes me a long time to tell people like how to like, how, what name I want to go by. Right. And that's something easy. So if you're birthing that, that's, already a lot. So I think if a black woman is finally speaking up about something in that setting, you have to listen and you have to act because it's, most women are dying from things that are preventable, right? So that's just what sort of comes to my mind. I'm not an OBGYN, obviously, you know, I'm not doing that work. I'm not a midwife. I'm not, you know, actually caring for someone who's pregnant and birthing, but that's the first thing that comes to my mind. You have to listen and act. I think too, like one of the things, I mean, obviously I can't speak for me for your experience as a black woman at all, but I, what I can say is that we all, and I, and I've had to deal with this as being stereotyped as a bossy or loud Jewish woman, right? Like mm. not worry about what people think about me. Like if I think something's wrong with my body or something's going wrong, like I'm bleeding or feeling lightheaded or my chest hurts, or I have a splitting headache. And someone else is telling me, no, you're fine, honey. Like, it's got to be like, no, actually, I'm Mm -hmm. not. And if you're in a position where you have an advocate there with you, a partner, a sister, a friend, and you're not being listened to, that other person has to listen. Because so often, a partner or a friend will get lured into the authority of the medical system mm-hmm. and start to inadvertently side, like identifying with the oppressor. And so instead of advocating for the pregnant person that they're there with or the birth and, and being like, she's actually saying she has a problem. So please listen now. Yeah. Um, they'll like, Oh, kind of like, well, it probably is just what the nurse said or oh, the doctor said you're fine, you know, so mm. I'm sure it's fine. I always think about Serena Williams. I mean, oh yeah. I mean, and I've said this on podcasts and interviews before, but, I remember first hearing about Serena Williams and what she went through. I don't know, or we've never talked about it, but just the stories. I mean, she's, she's undeniably an Amazon. You know what I mean? <laughs> she's undeniably this incredibly powerful, strong woman. And if she's having to fight for herself in the mm-hmm. hospital, like if she can be dismissed, how easy is it for every other woman to be dismissed? Absolutely. And not be confident enough to speak up. Yeah. Absolutely. So I think it, it's a problem with the system, you know, because if, if, if Serena Williams and all of her sort of, you know, status, you know, she, I imagine she probably was birth, her husband was there, you know, so, you know, even he with his like sort of white male privilege, you would hope that he could sort of like, and his like uber wealth could be like, hold yeah. up. Yeah. But I think that just tells you back to what you were sharing in the beginning, how these stereotypes sort of just frame the way that people respond, right? They think black women are like strong and we're supposed to be able to birth without pain and, you know, all of these like things that are not true and have higher pain levels, like that's, you know, not true. But I think it starts to inform the way that people respond. And then, you know, not to like keep shaming, well, no, they should be shamed, but the (laughs) sort of healthcare system, I do think there's these like systems in place that people are not they're just on autopilot. Again, yeah. I'm just remembering that like med student role I had in my OBGY and experience. And it was just like, 
pregnant person after pregnant person, delivery after delivery. You have like, you know, a few people in charge who like know it, know it all. And they're like, they're so disconnected from the experience. Yeah. I have this um kind of, I don't follow it a hundred percent as a rule because I can't always on Instagram with how a, a, I might be sharing a photo of a birthing mom and her head might be cropped off. But I have a rule that whenever I can, which is like 99.9% of the time, not ever present a photograph of a pregnant woman with just her belly and her head cut off. Because I feel like in some weird way that reinforces actually Mm. a lot of stereotypes about pregnant women. Like it is just about the baby and her belly and the rest of her or that that her mind and her face, like her personality and her thoughts don't matter. It's just what happens here from here down. So occasionally if there's like a gorgeous posed photo, I might share it, but I really try to emphasize that it's that whole woman. Wow. That's powerful. Do you have time to share a little bit about your birth or as much as you have time? Because like, yeah, I do. I want to hear you named your baby (laughs) brilliant. Yeah. That's amazing. (laughs) Thank you. Um, I mean, I think from what I can sort of recall about, I mean, I can, he came a little bit early. I, 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 I did hypnobirthing as a part of our like uh, birthing class. And so I did, I do like subscribe to a lot of the teachings from that. My daughter-in-law so. did it for her second. And I was the midwife for that one too. And she, yeah. it's really powerful to see just from her first to her second, how much it really, like there, we have some photos of her where she's just blissed out meditating, kind of oh, breathing. Wow. It is really powerful hypnobirthing, I think. It is. I didn't get to that point where I would say I felt bliss. Um, but there's a lot of time spent on just reframing like the, the language, a lot of visualization. Um, so, so when I said like he came early, he, he came in the right month, right? They yeah, don't she's doing you. air quotes for those of you guys listening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like he came in his own perfect time, but early for like the due date, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> so like, 38 weeks, but you know, they want you to kind of think about like your birthing month, which again, that sort of frees you up. And that's like, it frees you up from like this pressure and like, and then also my midwife was not really like stuck on the dates either. So that was something that was helpful. Um, But yeah, it was kind of like a movie where like I woke up in the morning um, and I told my husband, I think you're going to have to move this pillow from under me because I was sleeping on pillows because I didn't want to lay on my back. So I was like on my hips and my hips were hurting all the time from that. And my water broke when I asked him to pull the pillow. Um, Except in a movie, the second your water breaks, it's like, we got to get in the car. We We got to get in the car. The baby's coming. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So it wasn't, it wasn't at all like that. Um, And I just like texted my midwife actually, because we have number, you know, that's another great thing. You can like get in touch with your, you know, someone right away. And she called me um, and kind of moving things along. She, you know, just like told me like, okay, well, as long as you're feeling like everything's okay, baby's moving fine, which he was, I'll come and like, make sure that that's what this is, that it's like, you know, that you're, you actually, I can't think of any medical terms right now, which is so crazy, but I can't, um, but just checking to make sure that it was actually like, you know, my water really prodromal labor or like, premature yeah. labor. Or anything. Right. Yeah. So she did that and confirmed that, you know, my water did break and that I'd already dilated a little bit. So apparently, you know, all the walking and the different teas that I was drinking um, and maybe helped. And I also think visualization 
Um, what were you drinking? Were you drinking like red raspberry? Mm-hmm, the red raspberry tea. Did yeah. you do the dates? Did you eat dates? I did not. I actually <laughs> saw your post today. and I was like, ah, oh, that would have been nice to know. Um, mm-hmm. No, I didn't. But do the, the red dates. raspberry. Yeah, yep. I did that too. Did the red raspberry. And so during COVID, we were not going outside, but we live in this brownstone. So we were like doing walks around like the downstairs part. So um, to try to get some fitness in because we were not comfortable going out at all. Um, So yeah, so that was like in the morning, it was like 9am. And it was also, um, there was like holiday coming up. I think it was like Good Friday or something. So I was like, oh my gosh, is this baby going to be born around like, I don't know, Easter? It was just sort of interesting. That was like, I, I grew up like Baptist. And so that was something that was... Anyhow, so um, yeah, we, I wasn't in labor yet, and so she shared with me that you know if I don't if I don't go into labor, that ultimately um, you know in a couple of days we may have to talk about going into the hospital. But again, the frame that I love was there was not this pressure of your water's broken, yeah. you can get an infection. We're going to the hospital. It's like yeah, and I just if you don't mind for those who are listening, I want to just say two things. One is a reminder. We are like both seriously trained MDs. It's not like we're just, oh, if your water breaks, you can go to the hospital in just a few days. A couple of things about that. One is um, if you have group B strep and you're positive, that would be different. But two, there have been studies looking at women who have had waters broken for up to four days. As long as there are not frequent vaginal exams, there's no sign of infection, no um foul smelling discharge or anything unusual that the risk of infection is actually much lower than people might anticipate. So I'm not endorsing you just stay home with broken waters, but that, um, you know, what, what Jess is talking about is actually well within what has been studied to be reasonable. Hmm. Yeah. And okay, that, sorry, and, go ahead. Yeah, no. And I mean, that was a part of it. Like I did sign like a consent. We talked about mm-hmm. sort of like pre, I think what pre-rupture of membranes. Yeah. We talked about that. And she did share like, you know, you can't have sex, like nothing else, like nothing, nothing goes, there. nothing yeah. goes up there. Um, and so, you know, we were just kind of monitoring, monitoring that, but, but ultimately everything really went well. Um, we, she wanted to sort of try natural ways to induce. So I had like a pump, a breast pump I hadn't mm-hmm. used yet. So while she was here, we like put it on and she like, we used it. Stimulation. Yep. 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 And then um, nothing happened right away. I think that was like around 11. Like she came like in a couple of hours to ultimately like examine me. Um, and we just kept walking and trying the nipple stimulation. And, and then around like five o'clock, um, I had a, I had a doula also. So I send this text message and start this like group message because he came 38 weeks. So we weren't really expecting him mm-hmm. right then, but, um, me and my husband love Spike Lee. So we just put on do the right thing. That's like our go-to movie. We just absolutely love it. Um, it's like quintessential Brooklyn. That's where we live. It's just like, we loved it. So I was able to tolerate watching that. And I actually was seeing patients that day too. So I was seeing patients all up until like around five. There was a point when I was like, okay, I probably am in labor. Were you doing Um, telemedicine at that point? Yes, I was. Yep. So by then, um, yeah, this is like April. So everyone's working from home. So I was doing telecalls and it was not videos. So I was able, but I was, I was noticing my breath was getting a little winded. So I'm like, maybe this is starting. Um, But yeah, so we started watching that movie and, and, what I, I don't know for, for anyone who hasn't experienced like 
these contractions or what they call, what they told me to call, um, oh gosh, what was the language? Uh, Rushes. Yes. Yeah. I think so. Um, it just felt like normal cramping. Right. So it was mild. And so like my husband could rub my belly and that would sort of help. And so he was doing that. Um, and then it got to the point where it was like picking up and I said, okay, we got to stop the movie. Um, and then like around nine o'clock, I think I was like in like where they were coming, the surges, they were coming back to mm-hmm. back to back. And then my midwife came like a couple hours later, <laughs> um, which again, you know, we're all in conversation. There was a, that was a point when I really wasn't able to kind of like get going. Um, but yeah, so it was just kind of interesting because we had set up the birthing pool. We, we went with that, mm-hmm. um, but it wasn't filled up yet because again, we weren't really planning on that. So um, I think just from the labor experience, what I really liked about it and what I think contrasts the experience I know I would have had in the hospital was, you know, we labored downstairs on the couch while we were watching, you know, do the right thing. I got to nap a little bit, things picked up, you know, we came upstairs I labored in the bed a little bit. Um, did you then, eat throughout the day? I did. Yep. So yeah. I was hydrated. Hydrated. Mm-hmm. We had like fruit. My husband's from New Orleans. So I always, I said like one of the visions I had about our birth was I wanted our house to smell like red beans and rice. Wow. Nice. So I wanted to be able to tell him like once things were really going to like start the red beans. So he had started the red beans and rice. It takes like a few hours to sort of cook up. Um, and I wanted him to be distracted and not like too worried about like, you know, are you okay? Can I do anything? Because at some point they really can't help is how I feel about it. So, but yeah, so I'm getting a labor in these different places and I guess it wasn't even labor, like, huh, huh. it was just more like the surges would come and from hypnobirthing, I learned about like their 30 seconds to 90 seconds and sort of just riding that out with different types of breathing. And that really helped. You know, in my mind, I knew like, okay, if I can do this breath X amount of times, right, I know my surge would end and then I'll have like a period to kind of rest. And so it sounds like you stayed really present with each one and then like, okay, that's done. And then back to your life and then you'd stop again and back to your life. Yep, exactly. And so like my midwife and doula both were sharing with me that, you know, as things picked up, the same thing I think that you would, your OB would say if you were to call the hospital, like, okay, yeah, now it's time to come in. That's sort of like what it was. Like, okay, mm-hmm. you will know. And we did because it was a point when I said, okay, now, like, I'm not as comfortable. Um, they weren't coming so quickly behind one another, but it was just like, okay, I'm not as comfortable. And I think it was just the intensity, but it still was manageable. Um, and then we sort of went to the other room where, like, we had it already set up that morning. Um, but I just remember like sort of birthing and riding the wave, riding it out. We had music playing. My husband made this playlist of different um, like jazz and there was like um, sort of music we had been playing for the baby. So we had that sort of in the background. We had like uh, essential oils kind of going through the mist, the diffuser. Um, and when my midwife and doula, they both got here like at the same time. Um, you know, it was just sort of like everyone was peaceful and just kind of letting me do my thing. They would like periodically, the the midwife would periodically like listen to um, his heartbeat and that would sort of like keep me inspired. And Did you know um, you were having a boy at this time? I did. You did? Okay. So we did a gender reveal at, okay. at, a, at a party and it was, it was emotional, but so we knew we were having a boy, 
Um, but yeah, so I just, I just remember like being lucid, like again, sort of the periods in between being lucid. And I'm sharing this because I think it was something having not, like I had never sort of haven't had a baby before. I thought that it was just like this painful experience the entire time. And like, but there, it wasn't that it was really like these periods of intense sort of pressure. And then my body was really telling me what to do. So I do remember there was a point when I was sharing, like, I feel like I need to push, you know? And at this point, I think I was on the, on the bed in kind of like a cow position. And they, she replied, listen, like push. Right. And, and I think I'm saying this as someone who I was terrified of being told to push and being forced to be in a position that didn't feel comfortable. I really let that guide me. And I was really, I think, ultimately moved by how my body really transitioned through every stage with no one telling me what to do and having never birthed before, right? It's like your body's really doing this. If you Mm -hmm. just sort of let it, let it kind of trust it. I had one point when I did say, oh oh my gosh, I think this is too much. And my doula reminded me like, you know, this is, you're doing well. Everyone said that immediately. It wasn't like my midwife said, okay, let's go to the hospital. She was like, you're doing wonderful. You're doing great. And that just sort of helped me get back into like the zone. So it's almost like, I think every mama goes through that. I can remember with each of my, well, my first two labors, I think by the third and fourth, because I have four kids I knew, but I remember with the first two, like getting to that point of like, yeah, no, I can't do that. Like I thought I could, I can't do this. Like, it's just like a moment. Mm. And then somebody else reminds you, you, but you are doing it actually. You and are. that's, it's such a natural thought, um, but it doesn't mean something's wrong. It's just kind of a natural thought that things are getting more intense or they're very overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that was, it was like a moment. Um, and then she like recommended at that point, I think she like, she did check, me one more time. And I think at that point it was like nine centimeters. Mm-hmm. So I really had like gone from two to nine. I really, but I, I had also talked to my, my, my mother about how our family birthed and she shared like, yeah, we kind of, we kind of birthed more, you know, quickly, so to speak. Um, so I was pleased. I think when she said nine, I'm like, okay, I only got to get to 10. So in my <laughs> mind, I'm like, wow. Okay. Um, but it was just interesting to see how like the body, even when I was like, my body wanted to push, that was helping. And that's what she shared. Like as you're as your body's telling you to push, listen, but that's also going to help kind of open things up more. Um, and maybe that was just something she shared. So my mind would stay relaxed, but I felt like it, it was helping. Mm-hmm. So we eventually sort of transitioned to the birthing pool. Um, and I had got this really big pool as I thought my husband was going to be able to get in there with me. Um, but he ended up spending a good part of the, the remaining part of my labor actually running up and down the stairs to fill the water, to fill it with hot water because our hot water like completely ran out. Um, so even things about birthing tubs that there are always <laughs> these moments with birthing tubs, like the filling it or the emptying it that are the not romantic parts of what you see in these gorgeous birth videos. And I can't say how many times I've seen that happen. <laughs> like, Oh my gosh, it was, it was hilarious. But I also was just like, how is he doing this? Um, <laughs> because he was, he shared, he like basically had to boil water. And so he was just coming up and like, throwing it in there. But so again, funny. I just remember being so present that I was even asking, like, he cannot miss this. I, his name is Law Lawrence, but we call him Law. I said, Law cannot miss this. Like, please, please, like, are you all paying attention while I'm like in between laboring? So I just shared this and say, like, you can be so present. It was, that's what really? I think really struck me. I'm like, I'm here. I can stop and be like, don't let him miss this. Um, 
but eventually we got to a point where, you know, I still was on all fours, which I had not thought about. I didn't really go into this, like, I'm going to birth this way, but it was really interesting because when I did try to kind of lean back into the pool, it did not feel comfortable at all. So I'm like reassured by this like fantasy I had of like, I cannot birth on my back because Mm -hmm. I did not feel comfortable. So I just went back to that. And then I think as he started to crown, that's when um, my midwife really like encouraged me to sort of like take my time um, because she kind of shared like, this is when people tear, you know? So she said, so I encourage you to like sort of take your time. So again, it's like the, the theme I think that just stands out to me is like, no one was telling me what to do. And that's like who I am. Like, I don't like being told what to do. I didn't get to where I was by someone saying, do this, do that. And my husband also got to be really respected and understood and no one was afraid of him. And, or no one would sort of like say, if he was like, no, I don't want that. You know, no one would be like, oh gosh, we have to like, back to your point of what you shared about that sort of stereotype. So um, yeah, he like, when he, when, when he sort of, like she said, you know, the next one, he's probably going to come out and then sure enough, he did. And, and that's the sort of part was like, wow, is he out? And he was. Um, And I just remember, I don't think right away, I felt like this sort of emotional connection in that way. I think I just was, that's when my doctor mind kicked in. And I was just kind of like, okay, I hope everything else will be okay. Um, And it was, I mean, I kind of snapped out of it because then, you know, she was like, okay, I have this really thin gown on. And she was like, you have to take that gown off so we can put, you know, him on your skin. And I'm like, it's super thin. She's like, nope, gown off. Um, You know, and like, they helped me out the tub while I'm like holding my baby. Everything about it just felt so sacred. So like everything was centered about like me and my experience, my husband's experience, the baby it was really just like everyone was caring for me in that moment. Um, I didn't tear. I think it's because the water and her encouraging me to keep going the pace I was. And I just remember breathing very, you know, using sort of like the, 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 I think breathing, I can't even remember the names of these breaths anymore, but just kind of like being very thoughtful about how I was breathing. Mm-hmm. And I was visualizing a rose sort of opening as he was, um, you know, sort of being birthed. But, but I think what was just stood out to me once he was born was just the immediate attention to like me and him and like letting him lay on my skin and crawling to his first feed, you know, and really like, again, a, a big contrast to what I saw when I was in birth as a medical student. Jess, I mean, you just really birthed so primally in such a beautiful way, trusting your body. And I mean certainly many women wish to and have complications that prevent them from birthing the way you have or I have. And, you know, I don't want anyone to feel bad, you know, if they're listening and didn't get that birth experience, but um, I'm just so happy that you did get to have that. And thank you so much for sharing such an intimate (laughs) moment. Well, I want to know how you named him brilliant. Oh, yes. We had been throwing names around a bit. My husband is a third. Um, <clears throat> Funny, my name is Lawrence. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so he, he shared that he wanted him to have his own identity. Um, and I don't know if it came to him, but I'm pretty much like on board with anything that like he wants to do in the same way that he is for me. So I think we both sort of felt like we just wanted him to hear something that sort of kind of like nerd, like grow inside him. 
right? I, I just think about, again, all the stereotypes that many people have to overcome, but especially, you know, Black boys, that we wanted him always to sort of hear that, that he's brilliant. And brilliant meaning could, could mean anything. It doesn't mean that he has to go out and like be some like, you know, Nobel Prize winning scientist or, yeah. but just that he has a light and that yeah. he, you know, he is someone because he is here and, he, and just hearing that. So we, we wanted him to hear that. And I think that, you know, as we shared with people his name, that's the first thing they say. They're like, wow, he really is brilliant. And it's something I want people also to know, like how much it's important to like think about what we're saying to our children. So I want, you know, him to hear that all the time, that he's brilliant and it can go in any way, even if it's, he's brilliant because he, you know, he loves hard or he is kind. I don't care. I want him to know that like whatever it is that he chooses to do, he's brilliant in that. I love that. Thank you. Jess, I hear your little guy in the background. Do you have time for one more question? I do. Yeah. So we're in a really unique moment where, um, Mamas are having their babies at home or hospital, but um, they can't get the support from their families, their friends because of the pandemic right now. And so I'm doing a lot of work with just supporting moms throughout the process. And um, I just wonder if you have any, I'm sure you do, words of wisdom or insight from your work as a mental health professional and as a mama. Um, just maybe a couple of tips women can use right now, people can use right now postpartum to support their mental health or if they are struggling, what they can do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I just would start by, you know, just really encouraging, you know, each mom, no matter where they birth or how they birth that, you know, to know that they are the most important person in their baby's life. And so simply being there, um, is, is doing so much for, for that child. Um, and just kind of to think about that, right. No one's perfect, but that you are perfect for your child. Um, you know, obviously if someone is experiencing depressive symptoms, right. Feeling low, persistently low, or having trouble sort of connecting with baby, um, do not hesitate, you know, to seek help right away it might be a conversation that you can have with your support system and and they can help guide you to a place where you feel safe to, you know, start to get the support you need. Um, It might be a conversation to have with, you know, your OB or midwife, Um, but, but to speak up and and to say something, because even though I think when we take on this role as moms, the belief is like we are super heroes and we're supposed to kind of push through everything or that we love it all the time. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like you're not a good mom if you don't love it all the time. Oh yeah, definitely. Stigma. That is so big. There's definitely times when I'm like, okay, your turn. (laughs) Yeah. totally. (laughs) You know, and he does the same because it's, it's, it's every day. There's no days off. Right. Yeah. And you guys Um, can't see Dr. Jess, but I can see her. And so she kind of (laughs) squinched her eyes and like did that gesture of handing her baby over to someone else. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, but all of those things, um, but just, I think to, to like going back to that intuition we talked about to listen. So if there's anything inside you that says like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm having trouble to resist the urge to sort of push through it and just like find who you need to seek help and start with whoever you feel comfortable with, um, in terms of getting that help and the help meaning a medical professional or mental health professional, if you need one, um, 
and to, to really try your best to carve out time for yourself. Easier said than done, especially in the beginning. But, you know, I definitely find my shower time very sacred. That's I exactly try. What I was thinking. <laughs> and, you I, know, when I had my first, um, first I was like in that very early wave of attachment parenting of folks who were doing it. So I think we thought we had to like hold the baby 24-7 basically. And it was such a lesson for me to feel like I could step away from the baby, put the baby in a bouncer and get in the shower, even if my partner wasn't home. Mm-hmm. And that 20 minutes or 10 minutes in the shower just would clear my head and make me feel like me again, because there's you still in there, even with the identity as a mom. And it's easy for that you part to get lost, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I'm glad that I'm following something that you've done as well. <laughs> yes. Because I, I really so admire you. Oh really my gosh, you. thank you. So um, what's next for you? You've got this VH1 thing happening. You're doing hashtag be well. Mm-hmm. You're going to be a busy, increasingly busy celebrity doctor mommy. <laughs> <laughs> I, it, it really was interesting. I like never stopped working. I think it was what, that was one of the upsides from like working from home, even though I really am looking forward to normalcy. Again, um, a few things. I mean, very soon I'll have a, uh, a book that will be coming out on a platform where people can listen to, um, you know, books. So I have that sort of in the process of sort of finalizing that. Um, and it, it ultimately will serve as like a, a, a 101 for people, right? If they're just like, have never even thought about pursuing mental health treatment, like this is sort of like the nuts and bolts of it. And so people can sort of stay connected with me by, I'm really active on Instagram, ask Dr. Jess, um, or going to my website, askdrjess.com and kind of leaving me a note there or signing up for a newsletter um, where, you know, I'll kind of keep people informed. So I'm doing that. Um, I hope to also really kind of keep conversations going as I like take on this new hat as a, as a mom and just trying to figure out how much of that I want to share um, on social media. But but that's sort of in what's in store. I'm just going to kind of let this guide guide me as I'm really excited about, about being a mom now. Yes, it's really lovely to connect with you. I hope we connect a lot more in the future. And, uh, yeah, thank you for joining me and for taking so much time. And uh, it's really just lovely to hear about your work and who you are. Thank you for sharing so much so personally. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was, it was a pleasure. Um, and, you know, as I shared before, I really, I, I admire your work and, and it's also really nice to, to meet someone who's, you know, a physician, but, but so open to these other parts that we really don't get to explore in our, in our field. So I definitely hope to stay very close and in touch with you. Well, we will. Thank you so much. And everybody, thank you for listening. Check out Dr. Jess at Ask Dr. Jess on her website and her Instagram. It's really, she's got some really beautiful videos there. And one of the things that I loved that you said in one of, I don't know where I saw it, was um, you said that you are not your trauma, you are love. Mm-hmm. Yes, you are not your pain, you are love. Yes. So we'll end with that. Thank you, Jess. Thank you. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Natural MD Radio. 
If you did, please go to avivaram.com and join the conversation about the show on my blog. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. It's free and it's jam-packed with powerful tips to help you take back your health naturally. That's avivaram.com. Take care and see you next time.